Sometimes global crises can reveal structural weaknesses and lead to long-term change. I want every American to be prepared for the hard days that lie ahead. But what exactly will be the implications of the coronavirus pandemic? It has been another extraordinary day. Stock markets opened in a state of high anxiety, which gave way to panic. Will this crisis transform our economy, our society, our democracy? Or will we return to normal almost as if nothing ever happened? And what about us as individuals? What effect will it have on the way we live, the way we work and interact? One thing I think coronavirus crisis has already proved is that there really is such a thing as society. I'm Matthew Taylor, the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. My organisation has been at the forefront of social change for over 260 years. And over the coming weeks, I'll be speaking to scholars, business leaders, politicians, journalists and more and asking them one key question. How could... And how should the pandemic change our world? Welcome to Bridges to the Future, Responses to COVID-19. I'm delighted to be joined by my friend Torsten uh, Bell. Torsten, tell us, uh, first of all, who you are. I'm the Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation. We're an economic research think tank focused in particular on the living standards of families on lower middle incomes. How is the pandemic for you personally? You're at home. You just had to. We just had to delay a moment while you get the children into the house. How are things for you? Well, overall, we're in the lucky end. The pandemic and the scale of the economic crisis it follows is made work very busy. But that work can be done from home. The Resolution Foundation is now uh, lots of people spread all out over their own homes. But most of our research can continue to be done, and most of our um, engagement with government on that and trying to help the process of policymakers getting to the right decisions during this crisis can continue. It's disruptive, but it can continue. And you know, we've got the kids at home. They've just, but they've just walked back into the house, singing "Always Look on the Bright Side of Life," which is a good lesson for all of us right now when things are not always bright. I want to start by asking you the same question we're asking everybody on this pop-up podcast, and that question is: How could and how should the world change after the pandemic? There's lots of things that will probably change in small ways, but just stepping back for a second, what we're seeing is a very unusual kind of economic crisis where we are asking people to see their incomes hit in order that we can save lives. And in particular, we're asking lower earners to have their incomes hit because they can't work from home. So that is a different kind of crisis. That's why we're having to promise people to protect their livelihoods if we want to ask them to help us save lives. That does change how we come out of a crisis, makes it probably very different to coming out of the financial crisis. It probably means it's slightly more like what happens when we come out of a war. And in general, the good news, the silver linings to wars is that general, the experience of shared sacrifice of all being in it together to a greater degree than lots of economic crises. I would be hoping that we would see people recognising that low earners in particular have had a tough time and that we need to focus on them when it comes to the tax rises that need to follow from the huge expense of this crisis eventually. I hope we take into account that. So I would hope that it's a different attitude towards low earning and in particular towards the valuable work that low earners do. And I also hope that it is a general recognition that we follow the example of post-wars shared sacrifice, which is that we bring inequality down. 
Great, and we'll hopefully pick up with some of that in, in a few minutes. But but your particular expertise and resolutions expertise, and you've been pumping out you know really powerful stuff for almost every day throughout the crisis, and obviously influencing government as well, is around kind of what's going on now. If you kind of look at what's been done economically so far, things are moving so quickly. I think it was just two or three weeks ago, somebody shared with me a Goldman Sachs briefing they'd done for all their clients, in which they confidently asserted a V-shaped a recovery after you know a few weeks of the pandemic. I don't think anyone's talking about a V-shaped recovery now. So what's your kind of analysis, Austin, of let's just assume for the sake of argument that things started to get back to normal in about three months. And when I say normal, half normal, things starting to move. What are the kinds of circumstances that government's going to then be facing, do you think? So I think we have had a very swift change in both how the government is thinking about this crisis, but also how economists and how businesses are thinking about it. Even saw in a survey from the Bank of England today showing that people that completed a survey on the 6th of March, so you know it feels like ancient history now, but just a few weeks ago, only, only about a quarter of them, firms, thought that they were going to see a big hit to their revenue. By the time we'd got to the 20th of March, firms filling in that same survey were you know, up to 60% thinking that it was going to be very impactful on their revenue. So the world has changed very fast. In some areas, policy has taken time to catch up with that. So that is why it took slightly too long to move to bring in the retention schemes and other schemes the government has come in with, because for too long, people were hoping this was a short and sharp shock. In the face of a short and sharp kind of crisis, offering firms loans, subsidized loans make sense. You're trying to help those firms bridge that gap. But once you're moving into a longer crisis, uh, it may or may not be V-shaped, but it's definitely going to be a V spread over a lot of years. If it is, then you offering loans is not remotely up to the task. Firms can't take on a loan for nine months of their uh, revenues. They'll never be able to pay it back. They need actual relief and workers need security for their pay packets. So the policy has to change with your expectations of the crisis. I'd say now, what are we looking at? I think we're, we're in a phase where people are seeing that actually some form of these economic effects is going to be dragging on for some time, quite some time. We're not just talking about a few months. Within that, I think over time, we're going to see governments possibly actually recalibrating some of their schemes. You've seen that in the US recently, where they've, having not done so originally, have now moved to bring in a European style retention scheme like the one that we have got here to give firms money if they keep people in their jobs without work to do. Here, though, I think it probably means we will start thinking about how government pays for everything it's offering. Can it continue to pay for as generous support schemes for things that it set out for three months initially? Will it be able to continue with those levels of generosity if this goes on for in some form for six months? I think there are some serious questions there about the scale of the fiscal pressure. Because another way of thinking about what we're seeing at the moment, which is large numbers of people either going out of work or stopping work, but staying in some kind of relationship with their company, is that we see that initially as big spending pressures for the government, benefits, or paying companies through the retention scheme, but it also means much lower tax revenues. So I think the scale of the fiscal challenge this is going to create for governments is very significant. So if you look at this in kind of macroeconomic terms and compare it to 2008, which is a very different kind of crisis, would I be wrong in in saying that at the moment, the things we can be certain about is that there'll be a a huge amount of liquidity is being thrown into the system, which if things did recover, would lead to an even more inflated asset bubble. And on the other hand, Governments are having to go deep into deficit in order to manage this, which, again, 
might lead to the need for austerity. So in those kind of macroeconomic terms, is there any reason to believe we come out of this with anything other than an agenda, with an agenda that's rather like the financial crisis? I, I, there are reasons for thinking it will be different. I do think one of the lessons, again, that people shouldn't have needed this crisis to teach them, but definitely did, is that everyone spent all of the last few years writing books and articles about the next financial crisis being the problem we faced, whereas history uh, plus common sense would have told them that actually it's not it's very rare for the next crisis to look identical to the last and this one is very different in lots of ways i mean partly you know if we go back to the financial crisis i was in the treasury then the unemployment rises we expected to see never turned up it was very unemployment light given how deep the overall recession was it was still awful but nowhere near as bad as we expected this crisis though is a labor market crisis a jobs crisis it is a sudden stop to very employment heavy sectors of our economy think about hospitality and others that's why we're seeing these slightly unbelievably large outflow rates and the suddenness of the stop is also completely unique to this crisis normally recessions have a, a spark a cause but they take time to build and they're being driven by individuals behavior changing you and i choosing to spend less money week in week out and that driving problems for people's jobs and livelihoods this is not that this is us just saying to chunks of the economy you need to stop economic activity and so that speed is a kind of defining feature of it and it puts a lot more pressure on policymakers on the speed of their response. So, you know, looking back, when people write books about how to prepare for pandemics in future, they're going to say you need your job retention scheme ready to be rolled out and actually implemented on the same day that you announce social distancing measures. You cannot wait weeks or days in between those because otherwise you start to see very significant economic damage being done even on a very, very tight timescale that we've never seen before. Now, how will it differ in the aftermath from the financial crisis? Well, I think one thing, in some ways, that there will be similarities. Well, again, we'll have labour market slack, we'll have people out of work that will push down on pay and push down on quality of work for some time. But I think we will also have some things that are different. We won't have the austerity of the 2010s. I think the real debate we're going to have after this crisis is which taxes will go up and how much in total will the how big will that tax rises be? So insofar as there'll be something that looks like austerity, I think it will be a tax-led austerity rather than the very, very heavily public spending cuts-led austerity of the 2010s. Now, I'm, that does not mean that it will feel like good times for public services. The legacy of the 2010s will still be with them. And the effect of this crisis is that the increases they might have otherwise had will now be harder to deliver. But I think in terms of what policymakers do, I think we are heading into an era where tax rises is going to market out, not spending cuts. That's really interesting to me because of the, the questions it raise about kind of politics and public opinion. I'll, I'll come to those in a second. But what you see after a crisis is innovation. And the innovation, the big innovation, I guess we saw after 2008 was quantitative easing. And levels of intervention that we hadn't seen before, kind of reliance on kind of monetary policy. Do you think we are going to see, I mean, it's very difficult to predict, but do you think we're going to need innovation on that scale? There's something that we, we haven't even discussed that's just at the margins of the economic mainstream in terms of ideas. Are we going to have to think of completely new tools to cope with a world that's trying to recover from something, but at the same time, where an enormous number of countries are profoundly in debt. So I think we are already, in some ways, if we focus on just on the UK in a second and then broaden out, I think your way of thinking about it, which is crisis driving innovation, is completely right. And I think it is already driving innovation in macro policy. So let's just focus on a few areas. So 
the socialising of the economic pain of this crisis through the job retention scheme, through the compensation for the self-employed at very high levels, much higher than we've seen in previous crises, is a huge innovation. It's being driven both by the moral nature of this crisis. The government is telling people to not earn money and therefore thinks it has a moral pressure on it to stand in for those losses. You can't ask people to help save lives if you can't save their livelihood. But it's also the economic imperative, which is we need to give people the certainty that their incomes won't completely disappear unless we want this crisis to be even uh, deeper. So I think that is unprecedented. Now, that then leads to some follow-ups, which is given that level of socialization, the bringing of private pain onto the public balance sheet, um, the fiscal authority, the government is doing the heavy lifting here, Okay, which was true in the in the depths of the financial crisis. But actually, if you look at the period as a whole, it's the monetary authority, the Bank of England, that was doing most of the heavy lifting in terms of general support for the economy. Here, what we need is targeted support for people in trouble. Um, that is being done by the government. It means huge increase in borrowing. Uh, we've already seen, if you look at what the debt management office, the body that raises money on behalf of the government is doing in recent days, huge increases in how much they're trying to, the cash they're trying to bring in, £45 billion in just one month. What that then means as a knock-on in terms of innovation is that that innovation by the fiscal authority means a different approach in this crisis from the monetary authority. So in the financial crisis, both from interest rate cuts, 5% cuts, but but the introduction of quantitative easing, it was the monetary authority that was doing the work, was innovating to drive support for the economy as a whole. Now, what the monetary authority's job is, is to make sure that the fiscal authority, the Treasury, is able to do its job. So it's got a supporting role here rather than a, the front and centre role. It is doing that in one way right now, and it needs to prep for a second way in future. So the right now way is that it has engaged in, in quantitative easing, but it's really doing that to stabilise the gilt market, the market for government debt, to keep those, to keep you know fluctuations with that market down and to keep the cost of government borrowing lower. That is having a real effect. If you look at the last few weeks, we've seen a calming down of that market after the Bank of England announced £200 billion of further quantitative easing focused hugely on buying government debt. That is doing what it was intended to do. If if at some stage in the future, we move to a world where the sheer volume of government debt being issued means that the private sector doesn't want to mop up that debt when it's initially sold, which is what happens at the moment before the Bank of England buys it in what's called the secondary market, then the Bank of England might need to move to the next stage, which is allowing the government to do the job it needs to do in this crisis by buying up directly government debt at the point of issue, i.e. in the initial auction from the government, it's the Bank of England that buys it. That would be a direct form of monetary financing. That is not something you do lightly given the dangers to Bank of England independence and other things, but it would definitely be the right thing to do if it was needed given market instability. And that would be a big innovation. But so far, that isn't needed. The markets have been reassured by the scale of the government, the Bank of England's promises to engage in quantitative easing. There are then other innovations which I'm seeing less rapidly. If you look at Europe and how it's planning to deal with what could be very large rises in the debt burden in Italy in particular, the innovation is very badly needed there and is currently not on the table. If you go back to 2008, there were high expectations or hopes then that that might lead to, you know, a kind of surge in support for progressive parties and for policies that would address some of the things that drove that crisis. But of course, as we know, politically, kind of the reverse happened. Part of that 
in 2008 was because the left was divided between a kind of radical left of Occupy and 1% and social democratic parties who were desperately trying to kind of cope with the situation. How important do you think is a kind of new political alliance if the way we're going to emerge from this crisis is going to be in the kind of rational, progressive direction that you've described? Uh, That's a very large um, question that I'll attempt to do some justice to. So obviously how we actually respond as an individual country, but also as we see globally, is very contingent. I'm not making a determinist argument that we'll definitely see the outcomes that we would like to. I think what I'm trying to say is that the nature of the crisis and the visibility of the shared sacrifice, the visibility of the middle class workers you talk about, of middle class workers uh, like me who are able to work from home without health risks during this crisis, watching and relying on workers on much lower wages. Often, you know, let's think about this. Often we're going to see people going out to take health risks to keep this country functioning during this crisis, while other people are actually paid more than them, often by the government to stay at home. That is a that the moral and the political context that sets, I think, is very different. Although the outcome will be contingent, all I would say is that the nature of the crisis is very different to previous crises and pushes in a direction that is that is the right focus in terms of low earners and in terms of inequality reduction. Does that mean that will happen? No, that is where politics and broader economics come in. In terms of how that happens, uh, you know, another positive aspect to it is if you if you think about where the government's agenda was going pre-crisis they were basically in a phase where they were wanting to spend significantly more they weren't prepared you as you rightly say to put up taxes to pay for that yet but they were running right up to the hilt of what they could do on the spending side without doing that this crisis just means that the no tax rises option has just completely disappeared So that is not going to be an option for any government in the foreseeable future. And this government also has a majority of uh, 80 as going into this crisis. It probably have a majority of 80 coming out of the crisis. So it is also feasible. And then so we take that and then we combine it with the fact that the government sees itself as needing, you know, that it can't, it won't be able to go back to its old, more liberal, more better off coalition that previous conservative governments have been able to rest upon. It sees itself needing to maintain its new coalition from the 2019 election. So far, the aspect of that that's been focused on is the geographic one. That's what all the talk about the red or blue wall um, in the north of England and the Midlands. But it also has another aspect to it, which is lower earners and particularly older lower earners being crucial to that. So is, is the outcome in any way certain? Absolutely not. That's what the world of politics is all about. Um, but are there reasons both from the nature of the crisis and from the existing political coalitions that are out there that can get the right kind of outcomes? I think it's far from, you know, we, we, shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be too pessimistic. You worked for Ed Miliband. It's going to be a very interesting time for Keir Starmer, assuming it is him, to become the leader of the Low Party, isn't it? I mean, I think it's a difficult time for any policymakers. Um, it's a difficult time, particularly for a leader in opposition during a crisis, where your the nature of the job of the leader of the opposition is very different in a crisis, be it an economic crisis or a a military crisis, where your job is to embody a sense of the national purpose. So there's a shared purpose with the government in a way that there isn't always in normal times. But you need to maintain your unique role, which is to ask questions to encourage that you know not to have the usual tone of politics but still to ask questions because that is what you exist for as the leader of the 
opposition and getting that balance right, making sure you're a constructive part of the solution to this crisis, but without being, you know, co-opted fully into just nodding along is is not easy. And in particular, it's not easy within the current politics of the Labour Party, where everybody's looking to see, you know, this is right at the beginning of his leadership. So he's not, he won't have established where he sits on the, you know, on the continuity or change versus Jeremy Corbyn spectrum prior to how he deals with this crisis. So this crisis will also be how he's initially judged on that test as well. Torsten, thanks very much uh, for your time. Anybody who wants to see the brilliant stuff that's put out by the Resolution Foundation, you can Google them or they have a great Twitter account. Torsten also has a very good Twitter account with lots of uh, insights into what's happening in the world. Torsten, one last question, which is, uh, and you, you kind of talked about this a bit, but I'll get you to pinpoint it. If there was one thing more than anything else that you would like to see change uh, when the world recovers, what would it be? I think we are. I think we are going to, and I think we must see a reevaluation of the worth we put on lower-paid work, but which may be low-paid, but is certainly not low value. I think we need to see that at a general level, and that's what higher minimum wages can help us do. But I think we'll see it in a more granular way in individual sectors and individuals as parts of our society. As a collective, we'll need to take decisions around social care. And in the end, the level of pay in our social care sector, absolutely crucial to the current crisis, is just determined by the tax rates we're prepared to pay to put money into social care. And we'll also see it in you know, what we do and don't think is acceptable by way of the standards, including the kind of work you've done, better quality work. Those kind of things, I think people are going to say, we need and people deserve value to be placed on that work. And we need our regulations and our pay levels and the prices that the rest of us have to pay as a result to reflect that. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.